I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. You know what's fun, Santosh? Hey listeners, little behind the scenes. We have been procrastinating an episode for about three weeks and we're gonna push it to a fourth week. <laughs> yeah, I I don't think we're going to uh we're gonna discuss it or talk about it today, but uh you you can bet your ass that next week What we'll, for sure. Uh, yeah. For sure. But <laughs> you might ask yourself, what possible topic would they really just keep pushing back week by week by week? Well, keep listening and maybe you'll find out, but not this week. So <laughs> we needed we needed to do something cheery and happy and fun and also alternate because it's an alternate week. And Santosh, yeah. do you know what that means? Yo, is this time for one of yours and mine's favorite bi-weekly segments. Everybody's favorite segment. Everybody's. Journal Club. Yay! <laughs> for those of you who are familiar with the Journal Clubs, you may recall that every now and again when I throw them together, I try and have them grouped around a theme. <laughs> Emphasis you on the word try. Try. <laughs> I I gotta say, lately it's been pretty cool, you know, cohesive themes going on, Josh. Well, this time our stories are grouped around what I like to call May December science or the young and the ageless. Let's start off with a story that touches on both young and ageless. Okay. Santosh, do you recall a few journal clubs back we mm. We visited the idea of young blood uh, yeah. <laughs> being used to rejuvenate the elderly in some sort of corporate vampire <laughs> horror movie sort of scheme. Yes? Yeah. In fact, it's been a couple of our, you know, it's, it's been one of our favorite topics lately. And the truth of the matter is that the evidence for young blood rejuvenating older organisms really stops at like mice and hamsters, but that doesn't really stop humans who can afford it and who can convince you know, the right people to go ahead and, you know, get their blood. Well, <laughs> I think, I think we're finally getting through to the rich elderly people that you can't just steal blood from the young to de-age oh, yourself. God. Oh, that's okay. So we're, they're they're we're, finally giving up on blood and moving on. No, no. <laughs> to Aww. stealing the spinal yeah. fluid from oh, the youth. Oh, God. is this going to be a situation like you know you remember in like Guardians of the Galaxy? 
And they would go to that place nowhere, which was in a giant, like in a god's head, like a dead head. And they would be harvesting the cerebrospinal fluid because it had medicinal properties like that. It's not not like that. (laughs) In our first story recently published in Nature, young CSF has been shown to potentially improve the memory of old mice, or what I like to call another fluid-stealing story. (laughs) So, the original study we talked about was with blood, but in a protein in cerebrospinal fluid, may help boost cells that maintain brain function, especially in memory formation. So I'll let you go into the nitty-gritty of some of this paper, but just for the quick, the summary, the abstract, as we call it, researcher Iram and her team wanted to give aging mice an experience they would remember. They wined them. They dined them. They took them around the world. They showed them movies. <laughs> they read them poetry. No, they didn't. They ke- the team gave 20-month-old mice three small electric shocks on their foot in tandem with several <laughs> flashes of light and sound yeah. to create a fear association between light and shock. Yeah, this is a very well-established model of testing memory in mice. Do you remember when we shocked you? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the research. (laughs) We're actually not talking about this right now, but maybe we can do it for a future episode. We have actually used this technique um, as shocks to actually show that you can teach that fear of a certain thing, of a stimulus, to an unborn pup of a mouse when you you know, give those stimuli to a, like a mom. So showing that memory might even be genetic. So it's, it's a pretty powerful tool. It's really cool. Homer, Maggie's not afraid of bunnies. She (laughs) will be. (laughs) So after, after three weeks, the mice then faced the same sounds and lights, but this time without a shock, recreating Mm -hmm. the context of the fear without the actual harmful action. Right. They then infused the brains of one group of eight mice with spinal fluid from 10-week-old mice, while Mm -hmm. a control group of another 10 were given artificial spinal fluid, you know, not taken from anybody. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's, uh, that's the equivalent of the placebo control. Mice that received the spinal fluid from the younger counterparts remembered Mm -hmm. the shock and frozen fear 40% of the time, but the mice given artificial or placebo effect spinal fluid only froze and were worried about a shock about 18% of the time. Meaning that the ones who got the infusion of the young CSF were better able to retain memory. That's right. We could terrify them for longer. This is, it's a really scary model because essentially, Josh, you're inducing PTSD <laughs> and you're seeing how long that that PTSD is maintained under differing circumstances. <laughs> and not only are you inducing PTSD, but you're helping the PTSD last longer by stealing spinal fluid from the young mice. Yeah. <laughs> There you so, go. So this is all, you know, we're we're stepping back from human trials right now. This is very preclinical, but yeah, we're we're learning stuff. So the findings suggest that young CSF can restore decline in aging brain abilities. The reason they think that might be working is that spinal fluid in some ways almost acts a little bit like wire insulation. Uh, it's, it helps with nerve conductivity and it generates more of the oligodendrocytes or the sheath cells. If you generate more cells to insulate nerve connections, well, then nerves will be able to fire longer, especially nerves involved in memory or maintaining brain function. Yeah. Interestingly, they began to think not only is it the increased production of, of sheath cells, by young spinal fluid, but there might be a protein that helps us form memories when we're younger. And they found a likely candidate called, excitingly, FGF-17. 
<laughs> I do have to look this up. Usually when you see a GF next to something like that, it's a growth factor of some type, but it probably is something like a fibroblast growth factor and it's the 17th one they found in this context. <laughs> and giving the mice an antibody that blocked FGF17's function was also seen to impair memory formation ability. So even though uh, they start off by taking spinal fluid, they have also applied for a patent on their findings around FGF17, and then they'll give it its own fun name, which I'm sure <laughs> will be equally memorable. <laughs> I I sure hope so. Absolutely. This is such a cool finding because it, it wasn't just Frankenstein science, right, Josh? First, they... No, electric shocks, taking <laughs> fluid out of the spine has nothing in common no, with Frankenstein. No, 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 stop it. Stop it, stop it. Okay. The electric shocks and lights are a well-established model that's used in mouse studies of memory, right? So you induce a connection of a fear, a memory of a fear towards a particular stimulus, and how long can you retain that? So that is, you know, long established. The idea of cerebrospinal fluid kind of making a, an older mouse younger type of thing fits with what we found with the blood data. So you're making strides on a known hypothesis and, you know, theory that's, that's kind of coming through. And then finally, and here's the most important part, rather than just settling and saying that like, okay, the CSF, you know, helps the, the older mice, the young CSF helps the older mice. You're actually by what's called subtractive analysis looking for the actual molecules, the, the little underlying pieces that are responsible for the effect that you're seeing. In this case, by attempting to block the effect of that protein using a monoclonal antibody. So the stepwise you know, focus of this kind of a study is absolutely beautiful. And I love stories like this because it explains the path of scientific discovery. Now, this is a very labor-intensive and challenging experiment. The way that we tend to collect spinal fluid is, well, this is spinal tap. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you have, to, you have to put a needle in the spinal canal between two vertebrae. And I actually don't know how they do that. <laughs> I, I do spinal taps on little babies, on, you know, Yeah, children. me too. You should hear yeah. them whine and cry. <laughs> specifically when we're worried about meningitis okay and that's difficult in a you know two three kilogram uh, you know baby so in a 500 gram mouse i don't know where you find a, a teeny teeny tiny needle you know small enough in order to do that it's absolutely and amazing. it's not like it's not like blood donation where you can empty a whole bag at a time. When you right. collect spinal fluid from a human, they have to lay down flat on their back for at least 30 minutes to an hour or suffer a terrible headache. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> any, any blood that gets into the spinal fluid completely contaminates. It makes the sample useless. Pressure in the brain is a delicate balance, so it's not just taking it out, but infusing the CSF into the recipient has to be a very slow process and in a specific location in the brain, which is the ventricles, which are tiny little empty pockets in the brain, empty of other brain matter, but not empty of fluid. Uh, so all of this could be really challenging in the human populations that we would theoretically want to use it on right? It's hard enough to get somebody with Parkinson's or Alzheimer's who doesn't know what's going on, who's going to be irritable, who's going to be kind of flailing about even at the best of times yeah. to sit still long enough for us to remove fluid. Now imagine we have to find some way to ultimately inject fluid into people who don't understand what's going on and really don't have control over most of their faculties anymore. Right. And even before what you're talking about, Josh, which is the flailing and, you know, you'd probably have to use sedation or something like that. There is a problem here with autonomy as well and making sure that you're giving the patient 
free will and choice to be able to accept a treatment, which you can't always do. Now, this is a good idea, for instance, for maybe early Parkinson's or early Alzheimer's, where the diagnosis has been made and you're starting to see cognitive decline, but they're not so far gone that they can't actually guide and consent to their own medical therapy. So possibly, I don't know, but I personally would like to see a lot of very good clinical, preclinical trials first. So let's move on to our next story, which is in some ways even more horrifying, at least for those of us <laughs> with my particular hangups. <laughs> oh, Josh, are we going to the beach? No, no, and it's not about yeah. teeth either. This is <laughs> this is about Terminators, Skynet, yeah. <laughs> and robots. So Santosh, Google <laughs> recently fired one of its employees who was like, you guys, our AI has become sentient, and uh, I'm concerned. <laughs> now, to be fair, to be fair, the Google employee was concerned that the AI who is childlike and full of innocent wonder may have gained sentience that it would be abused by the corporation. Not that it was yet forming early stages of creating terminators, but. Oh but, dear. Oh God. Okay. Well, I mean, I one saw, can lead to the other. Is this a problem? <laughs> but immediately after reading, Oh, Hey, Google has a sentient AI. Maybe. Uh, I then found, <laughs> I then found a paper in, matter scientists have grown living skin on a robot finger you may be asking yourself why that's a great question now if you had to guess who's creating skin for robots what country Uh, do you suppose you'd look to skin for robots um since we're doing robots and we're doing like humanoid robots i'm a go japan you would be correct (laughs) oh gosh okay I I really didn't want to be right. (laughs) Unlike the artificial skin commonly used in building robots, this skin is alive, said lead study author Shoji Takeuchi, who is professor in the Department of Mechanical and Biofunctional Systems at the Institute of Industrial Science at the University of Tokyo. Ooh, very cool. Okay. Now, even though the end result is nightmare-inducing for a variety of reasons, <laughs> the actual process is fascinating. Now, Japan, of course, has a very rapidly aging population. They have wholeheartedly embraced the idea of helper robots just because there's simply not going to be enough young people to assist the grain, the gray wave, the gray tsunami that is approaching. Uh, Even if they steal all their spinal fluid, there still won't be enough to go around. So this scientist and his team have been working on creating living skin for more, I don't know, kawaii robots. Anyway, let's talk (laughs) about the process. The robotic finger was first submerged in a solution of collagen. So picture the end of Terminator yeah. <laughs> yeah, any of them really but yeah, picture the end yeah. of terminator yeah, when okay. you're but in reverse so instead of melting the skin off to reveal the steel work underneath the steel, yeah yeah you dip the steel into this soup of collagen and human <laughs> dermal fibroblasts which are the cells sure. that help to create our skin now yeah. the solution is molding and conforming itself around the finger and as it's doing that Takeuchi et al. applied human epidermal keratinocytes to the outside. (laughs) And keratinocytes? I hate pronouncing stuff. Yeah, you're right. Keratinocytes, exactly right. Uh Keratinocytes are the main type of cell that makes up our skin, the outermost layer. Yeah, so keratin, right, is the hard... Uh, you're going to love this, Josh, what we call the horny layer <laughs> or the corny <laughs> layer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Because keratin is the same stuff that makes up a rhinoceros's horn, for instance, and, uh, and your hair as well. So it's the tough outer layer that resists damage, but also keeps our skin watertight. 
Okay. And actually helps close up and then promotes uh, wound healing underneath whenever we get cut. Now, one of the things they note is that uh, unlike traditional robot skin interfaces <laughs> where... <laughs> So much to unpack there. Traditional robot skin. <laughs> Is that a throwback to a robot singing like Yentl? <laughs> Tradition. <laughs> Part of the problems with creating lifelike robot yeah. skin <laughs> is that it tends to be made in sheets and then pressed on and wrapped so you have areas that kind of hang you've got baggy yeah. areas this this method of dipping it into skin goo uh, allows <laughs> it to really mold to the frame and are you ready to have even more fright like are you ready for even more fear the team put a collagen bandage made of you know similar kind of goo on a part of the robot finger that had been inflicted with a wound intentionally and the collagen bandage helped to mend it, and the robot was able to move freely after the protein repaired the skin. That's right. Now we're giving Terminators the ability to heal. <laughs> because now, he just doesn't know when to quit, <laughs> Takeuchi is also interested in adding a vascular system. You know, the way blood circulated throughout robot bodies to help shuttle nutrients to and from the cells and keep the skin alive. Ever wanted your robots to bleed? Sure you have. He also, ambitious guy, is yeah. trying to develop additional details, such as hair follicles, nails, and sweat glands. But robots can't wear these lab-grown skin suits out just yet. <laughs> okay. Tell us why, John. Uh, largely because it really has to spend a ton of time soaking in goop. Uh, it needs sugar, it needs amino acids, all these other ingredients that the skin cells need to survive. Um, so any Terminator or cyborg wearing this skin would have to spend the vast majority of its time bathing in a broth of nutrients or using some <laughs> other complex skincare routine, which tells me that we're going to need Terminator dermatologists, or as I am now coining the field yeah, yeah, right yeah, here yeah. in this moment, yeah. Termatologists. <laughs> oh my God, Josh, we have dear, dear friends who are dermatologists. Uh, we need to get them on board with this because I need to be dear friends with the first termatologists. <laughs> we welcome our robot overlords. <laughs> so hold on. Let me uh, step back just a little bit here because what they're doing is a proof of concept to show that you can put a coating of skin over the metallic or plastic frame of the robot or whatever it is and make it work. The problem that you have is living cells need constant oxygen and nutrients. For us, that means blood flow and ultimately capillary flow. And then the cells are not just able to live, but they're able to turn over, meaning that the outer harder layer sheds off a little by little, and then the basal layer divides and creates the, you know, the next uh, old layer and then cycles over and over and over. So right now we're just at step one where you can coat the surface with skin, but you still have to provide the nutrients. You still have to replenish it yourself. We're not to the point where it's true skin. I mean, it is true skin. It's, well, it's made like of, a... it's made from skin cells. It receives oh, the same nutrients that skin does. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's a, th but it, it's, it's it's not an independent tissue. How about that? And well, it was inspired by the creation of this gel was inspired by the medical treatment of deeply burned skin using grafted hydrogels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is really, like I said, the, the paper itself in matter is very easy reading and culturally so Japanese. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like I, here, here's just a brief thing from, from the summary. Humanoids are robots created with human forms or characteristics. They also have the potential to seamlessly interact with human beings. 
by replicating the appearance and functions, such as the self-healing of human beings, that's how I always think of it, humanoids <laughs> have the potential to establish more harmonic and natural human-robot interactions. Here, we propose the use of, ready to shudder, skin equivalent, a living skin model <laughs> consisting of cells and extracellular matrix as a human-like and self-healing coverage material for robots. <laughs> Oh, skin equivalents. <laughs> to be fair, having these skin-like equivalents on helper robots will make sure. it easier for them to grasp things, such as yes. if they are assisting elderly folks with Parkinson's who can't hold uh, or pick up or do fine motor movements. That's something that a metal Terminator frame really wouldn't be able to manipulate. They can fire guns at us, but they can't open doorknobs or perform some of those fine motor actions. Giving them human-based skin would solve a lot of those problems. Someone yeah. thought that was a good idea. <laughs> well, especially because uh, mammalian skin and human skin in particular over the hands, right, has kind of a cool superpower. We wrinkle when our hands are immersed or exposed to a lot of water. And, you know, we used to think that that was just from the flow of salt, electrolytes, and water in and out of our cells. But it turns out it's probably evolutionary, and it allows us to grip things when they're wet. So rather than a different type of a surface that you coat this robot hand in <laughs> where it would actually get slippier slipperier if there was wetness on there this one i don't know josh if the skin would be able to react the same way like if there was it, it needs a nervous system right in order to pucker like that and wrinkle to my robot don't skin. wrinkle wrinkle it folds <laughs> my robot skin don't wrinkle wrinkle not yet the really interesting paper uh, we're one step closer to Terminators. Make of that what you will. <laughs> Let's move on. Now, now, that does lead us naturally into our next story, because uh, that causes me a little bit of mental distress, Santos, okay. to, think that, to think that we're that much closer to Terminators. Well, and <laughs> luckily, there's a mental yeah. health hotline launching July 16th of this year, which is not really a new thing. It's a repurposing. So mm -hmm. traditionally, we've talked a lot about the suicide hotline or suicide help crisis hotline. And there's a lot of regional ones. And if I were to ask you, what is the National Suicide Prevention Hotline right now without looking at your phone? Could you tell me? Oh, is it exactly. a 999 it, type it, of thing? Exactly. It's a 10-digit okay. phone number. Sure, sure. Yes. Who's got time to remember 10 digits? It's a mental health emergency. Yeah, and absolutely. for that, so. we need an emergency hotline. So just like 911 is there for physical emergencies, and a lot of times 911 operators are not necessarily always the in a position to best deal with folks having a mental health crisis while they are also dealing with, you know, all the other crises for which we call 911. Sure. So starting July 16th, you can dial 988. And that is a 911 for your brain. This won't go to the dispatcher that we think of in, you know, emergencies where they would call traditionally either an ambulance um, fire or police. This would be a completely different type of service. So here's here's the good and the bad. The good, 988 will bring you to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline established in 2005. The 10-digit number that you see on televisions and commercials is still going to be active. The 988 is just an update that will facilitate getting help. It's easier to remember. And Health officials really expect just a simple number change to increase call volume to local crisis centers. It'll take some of the burden off 911. It'll redirect. So it's intended to be a stride in accessibility. However, making it that much easier to remember may have the side effect of overloading what are already pretty underfunded crisis centers. Because 
There is no money or resource to support this initiative. Congress authorized 988 in 2020. Can you think of any reason why Congress might authorize an easier to remember mental health hotline in 2020? No, me either. (laughs) Um, However, the funding for things like staffing and infrastructure, you know, phone lines, internet connections, were all left to the states. And only six states have set aside money for it. Separate from that, we really don't even know how effective these crisis line services are because they've never really been studied. Now, I am not saying I do not think they are useful. They absolutely are useful and necessary and needed. But when a crisis line service systematic review was done, also in 2020, it didn't really show that there is measurable effectiveness. So literature searches of all the popular journal aggregators, Medline, Embase, PsychInfo, Web of Science, my personal favorite, Cochrane okay. Library, Google Scholar, were looked at over a period of 1990 to 2018. And they looked for studies that provided health, or utilization-related effectiveness outcomes, meaning somebody calls the suicide the suicide crisis hotline, how do you measure whether or not it's been effective? Because they are not necessarily giving active therapy on this hotline. They are trying to get you out of the immediate crisis and to the necessary resources. But gotcha. there's no real way to follow up on that if you are on the other end of that call. Right. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So 33 studies of over 500 that they examined. Only 33 studies even demonstrated effectiveness outcomes. Whether or not they were or weren't, only 33 looked at it. In most cases... They looked at crisis calls versus other modalities, including user and helper reported data and analysis of administrative records. So we don't have any good high quality evidence to demonstrate crisis line effectiveness. We don't know how to change or make recommendations to what people are doing to say this will help more people seek out those resources. We don't know what techniques are the most effective in causing people to change their mind. There's very much a nature nurture debate that we don't know anything about. So is this useful? Instinctually, on a gut level, we all want to say yes. But on a scientific level, I don't know if helplines actually really do too much. We we just don't have reliable metrics to study. So this is a level of scientific inquiry, which is absolutely mind-bending, but 100% necessary. This is one of the fundamental starting places for science, right? Every single scientific inquiry starts with, I don't know. And here, Josh, we're actually looking at a problem, which is definitely a, a crisis and a problem that needs to be addressed in a big way. How do we get help to people who need it, right? But The fundamental question that's actually here is what do we actually need to learn in order to address this question, this question of how do we help the people 
who need help or how do we get people to the places they need for help? For those of you who have never called a crisis line service, usually during such interactions, the responder will look to reduce the crisis state, the distress and the imminent risk of self-harm. Um, they can provide resources, strategies, even just an ear to listen, uh, as well as referrals and engagement in care, but they can't make appointments for you. They're, they're looking to say, is this somebody who we have to contact 911 to get emergency services out there? Is this somebody that we're providing kind of not ongoing regular therapy, but let's get you past this imminent thing? And we're talking about Congress didn't pass any funding for these, but how do you know what's a good program? Because these are all regional centers. There is not one national center. The crisis hotline connects you with a bunch of local regional ones in your area. And if your area is not well staffed with these kinds of services, well, then again, how do you determine who needs more money so they can improve what services they offer? What services should they offer? The mental health infrastructure that we have anywhere in the world, not unique to this country, is mind-bogglingly lacking. I think the pandemic and everything that happened in 2020, 2021, 2022 (laughs) kind of tore open or forced us to come face-to-face with a lot of the problems, specifically with mental health and mental care, um, that were under the circle. Absolutely, Josh, you're right. I think the dual strategy, right, where there is funding and infrastructure put into mental health systems, and then likewise research so that we can actually find out what services help best and where we can do the most impact. Both of those at the same time. Once again, launching July 16th nationwide, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline will now be kind of rebranded as the Mental Health Hotline, and you can reach it by just dialing 988. Um, let's, let's bring the mood up a little bit. <laughs> well, I, I thought you were going to go down with the next one, but yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh you want to go down. Well, then, it's important. <laughs> Yeah. That we uh, take the appropriate precautionary measures. Never go down without yeah. protection. You got to get up to get down. <laughs> Have I made enough innuendos yet? Uh, I mean, are at this point, are we going to get down on it? We could get down on it. Get down okay, on it. Get down on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Wait, that that's the whole chorus to that song, isn't it? <laughs> just it's most to, of the lyrics. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. <laughs> just want to make sure I'm not missing anything. <laughs> A new underwear has been approved by the FDA to yes! guard. <laughs> and you yeah. may... I know you're excited, Santosh. I'm so excited. But our listening audience may be wondering, why does the FDA need to approve underwear at all? <laughs> Well, okay, hold on, hold on. This is not the first time the FDA has had to approve underwear because there is long-standing, there's been edible underwear, which is a food product. (laughs) Well, now there is sexy time underwear that guards against sexually transmitted infections. Yay! uh, During oral sex. It does not protect you from blanket, you know sexually transmitted infections. It is specifically designed to prevent infection transmission during oral, which means this underwear is a very fancy, better designed option of a dental dam. Yeah. So right now we're going to focus actually on biological female anatomy, right? So dental dam, for those of you guys who don't know, is going to be a small square of resistant material. So it has to be silicon. Latex, usually. Latex, yeah. Latex is good, too. Something that will resist transmission of bodily fluids and the fluid-borne diseases so that when one person engages with with another in oral sex, so the person receiving oral sex would lay that down over – the mons pubis, labia, and vaginal introitus. Or and anus. Then, Let's not be, or, you know. 
sorry, let's yeah, absolutely no no shaming, absolutely, or the anus. Um, the oral sex would be performed with the barrier in place so that you could have stimulation and pleasure and everything else, but you would be stopping the transmission of fluids and disease. But the thing about that, Josh, is you gotta carry one of these around. Like Oh, that's not even the problem. Carrying it around is not the issue. Uh, okay. They were originally designed, surprisingly, for use during dental surgery. Damn. Oh. I guess that's where we got the name for it. <laughs> right? But yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, got they it. have not really been fundamentally updated in over 40 years, and they're not really user-friendly. You know, yeah. if you're a dentist and you have a dental hygienist to hold a dam in place over the operating area, the mouth yes, uh, that's uh, fine but if you're using them for sexual purposes they have to be held in place they could move around which mm-hmm. would allow bacteria to be transmitted from well one opening to another yeah uh, it, it basically you're losing effectiveness the same way as if you improperly put on a condom and it slipped however this new underwear uh brand name Loral's. Uh, Mm -hmm. are worn like underwear. They are latex-based. This allows them to be hands-free without worries that they'll slip out of place. They did have to meet the FDA's requirements for things, for FDA clearance. Here's some of the FDA requirements, uh, just the general categories. Dimensions, thickness, elasticity, strength, and my personal favorite, lack of holes. (laughs) So those are all of the preventable or sorry, preventative measures, right? All of the things that the the stuff needs to be sturdy enough to, you know, undergo, you know, sexual activity and still stay intact and not have any manufacturing defects or things like that, where when you put them on, there's holes to kind of begin with. You do have other parameters, Josh, in here that it's safe for human use and non-toxic and those kind of things as well. It has to stretch to at least 650% of the resting length. Mm-hmm. Morales <laughs> went to 750% or more. Yay. Uh, okay. Good job. Young. Double Good job the, double the required tear resistance of five nanomillimeters. Okay. Um, okay. It's made from latex. So if you have a latex allergy, you're still kind of out of luck and it comes in two styles, bikini and shorty. Hey, very cute. So it retails for 25 bucks <laughs> for a pack of four pairs. Uh, it is not meant to be worn all day or day. It is really <laughs> meant to be. And this is, again, what may end up leading to its sort of lack of use within its target community is it's really underwear designed to be put on for this one specific purpose. Oh, about yeah. to engage in oral intercourse? Hold on, let me go get my underwear. And then you put <laughs> it on, and then you take it off, and then you throw it away. It doesn't get washed. It doesn't get reused. It is not worn around casually. Um, even as a fetish thing, it's really a functional for this one purpose and only purpose. Yeah. So essentially the same way that a condom is a barrier And it's placed on an erect penis when, you know, people are ready for sexual activity in that case. This is meant exactly for the same thing, Josh. And I don't know if the hope is that, you know, the the users would keep it maybe at a night side, you know, kind of a nightstand or a bedside table where you could just slip it on very quickly, you know, engage in the activity. And then, you know, you would have to take it off if... As a for instance, you know, there was any intention of having penetrative sex. And unfortunately, this would not protect in that case because this is a sheet that actually covers the anus and the vaginal introitus. So in that case, you know, you'd have to have a covering on whatever is penetrating. So your penis, your fingers, or whatever it is in order to protect transmission of disease. So it is cumbersome. But I think it's a fair you know, like first step, you know, I I'd say it's, it's definitely an interesting step, you know, of the variety of tools available, but let's move on to our, our last story, uh, which is one that came to my attention pretty recently, just today as we are recording. Uh, And 
We talked about young, we talked about old. Now let's talk about restless, as in not getting rest. Uh, <laughs> most, most organs, when you transplant them, are meant to be transplanted right away. They cannot be stored for more than six hours, usually on ice, 12 hours using most of the conventional perfusion machines. And this short window means a lot of donor organs, even when they are obtained, they go to waste because waiting lists are terribly long everywhere. And moving an organ cross country, sometimes it's just not practical. You don't have the time, even if you have the organ. So researchers in Switzerland have created a new kind of perfusion device that allows donor, in this case, livers, to be stored safely for up to 12 days. Days. It's a liver in a box. Before transplantation. <laughs> Step one. <laughs> Open the box. Step two. Put the liver in the box. Step three. Let the liver hang out in the box until <laughs> you're ready to transfuse it. It's organs <laughs> in a box. Ooh. <laughs> I'm so happy about this, Josh. I think we've done heart in a box. We've done kidney in a box. Is this the first time we're doing liver in a box or is this a different take? It on... is. It is the first time we're doing liver in a box. There are so many organs we can box up. <laughs> the, uh, there's going to be a true crime documentary about us someday. <laughs> I absolutely love so... it. This is so cool. The The concept for all of these, by the way, is the same. But yeah, now we're doing livers, which is absolutely awesome. Okay, tell us about it. Um, so this actually would have been something that we would have covered in early 2020 when they had finally come to a perfection of their technique, allowing them to store a liver outside the body for three to four days, which again, when you're looking at a previous time of 12 hours, several days is enough to get a liver almost anywhere in the world. Now the treatment process has been refined considerably. So livers can be stored so much they're viable for transplant. Um, they, in order to really show off, basically to flex a little, mm -hmm. the researchers started with an intentionally poor quality donor liver. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So they were actually pushing the limits of viability already. Well, they took one that wasn't going to be... Basically, they said, we need a liver to test our machine on to make sure how long will it be viable, but we don't want to take a liver that was already earmarked to go to somebody. So give us got, a lousy oh, quality liver. Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay, so you don't want to start with something where your experimental protocol may destroy a viable organ, which could save somebody's life then and there. Got it, okay. They then treated this liver with various drugs and introduced it into this new perfusion machine that has pumps that serve the role of the heart, an oxygenator that works like the lungs, a dialysis unit that performs the functions of the kidneys, and a mechanical system that sways the liver in sync, rocks it to sleep with human breathing in lieu of a diaphragm. <laughs> I love how you said introduce, like liver, machine, machine, liver. In addition, they also did antibiotic and hormonal therapy. So they're they're really performing a full-on transplant with no human. Just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're you're transplanting it into the box. And that's the <laughs> way you do it. It's reverse in a box. <laughs> now, although this organ was very much not intended for transplant, a life or death situation actually prompted the research to say Ah, uh, you know what? We've got somebody who wants this liver. Do you want to try it? Which is, to me, kind of like eating supermarket sushi. We're like, <laughs> might work. Could be good. Could, Could go good. poorly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there was a 62-year-old patient who suffered from terribly advanced cirrhosis, severe portal hypertension, and he got this, you know, hoopty liver. Okay. <laughs> which they had done all these things on sure was yeah, yeah. was discharged just 12 days after the operation and Whoa. a year later he's doing great the Whoa. liver that was transplanted the defunct liver shows no signs of damage injury or rejection 
So it's actually <laughs> possible in this case to not only alleviate the lack of functioning organs and save lives, but in some ways even not quite the right phrasing, but reverse some of the damage in organs that previously would have been thrown out. So we're increasing our supply of livers. And right now, about 70% of donor livers are never used, mostly because they fail to reach a recipient in time. Yeah, this is so fantastic, right? You're reducing waste, absolutely. But then you're saving lives. And Opportune and the investigators and the patient had an opportunity to take advantage at the time. That's a rare scenario. All right. And it's not the best way to do science. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's, hey, it's, hey, yeah. hey, buddy, you want this three day old liver? Yeah. <laughs> so it's definitely noteworthy. And I think it might be, you know, at least publishable to say, these are the protocols we went through. These were everything that happened in terms of the events, but it is purely anecdotal. This is not data. No, but it the technique and the device itself is what they were working and studying. In that sense, the device performed flawlessly. Oh, yeah. I mean, so, kind of above and beyond what we were initially testing for. So if you'd like to look into non-horrifying bioengineering, such as <laughs> extending human organs rather than providing robots with skin, <laughs> these... This was reported on in the journal Nature Biotechnology, which is a lovely journal that does not cause me anywhere near the number of nightmares I get every time robots are mentioned. All right. I'm glad uh, for you. Now, now that brings us to this week's Just the Tip. That's right. We are now that the CDC has lifted the COVID testing restrictions to return to the country. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, I forgot about that. Yeah? It's a travel free-for-all. Oh, no. <laughs> Let me... Okay, let's throw out some caution out there. Please, everybody, still use some caution. There is still a horrible virus circulating around. And by the way, as we're all just loosening up, Josh, there's a ton of other common respiratory viruses flying around threatening to hurt us. free for all <laughs> so All right. for those of you who the last barrier to being willing to travel was the fact that it could be really difficult to find testing kits in some of the destination countries and you yeah. could not get back into the u.s without having a test i think i'm in agreement at this point that this this has been everywhere this is a restriction that is no longer needed yeah um that doesn't mean you should stop testing if you think you're sick, just that we should not prevent somebody from coming into the country unless they have a negative test. There is no I, I, stopping this with travel anymore. <laughs> I, I agree with you there, Josh. I agree with you there. Right now, the public health focus is shifting from, you know, broad-based kind of case recognition to examining and looking for factors that would increase very ill people, you know, the number of hospitalizations, the number of ICU beds taken up, and the number of deaths. So, yes, in that sense, broad range testing just for the sake of screening is no longer a viable strategy. It's a little heartbreaking because I love data. You know, wherever it comes in, I just, you know, I want the data. <laughs> I, I think just tracking cases anymore is just not, it's not informative. So with that, we are back to our regular just the tips. Now, I am going to start trying to theme these to be a little bit more medically inclined. So <laughs> let's visit another medical museum. This time, I'm going to be talking about Surgeon's Hall in Edinburgh. Uh, Scotland. Okay, uh, cool. Founded in 1505 to present surgical and anatomical curiosities, it became the center of the Scottish Enlightenment during the 18th and 19th century, okay. and originally was developed as a teaching museum, uh, an idea that we've had a couple times, Santosh, although we are far too underfunded to carry yeah. it out. 
That's true. That's true. There are museums like this, usually associated with medical schools, colleges, that kind of a thing, where they have things like specimens, anatomical drawings, specific cases that have either been preserved in some way, so that generations and generations of young doctors can learn uh, from holding on to these things. Yeah, yeah. There, it, it works out really well most of the time, except, you know, the way that we used to preserve these was in really toxic stuff like formaldehyde. <laughs> so you'd have to, you know, keep the cases super tight so you aren't inhaling fumes as you're trying to learn. The museum today is home to, of course, the usual bone and tissue specimens, artifacts, artificial curiosities, works of art, one of the largest collections of surgical pathology in the world. but. A particular highlight, there's two for me. One is a journey through the dissection room, complete with interactive dissection table. You know me. I'm a very hands-on museum guy. (laughs) This is virtual dissection, huh? Yeah, virtual dissection. (laughs) So this is like one of those, it's like a video game dissection type of thing. Oh, Also, don't miss information about Edinburgh's famous body snatchers, Burke and Hare, who oh yes, <laughs> who would routinely commit murder in order to then sell bodies to the medical school. I recently read about this case in a book by Sam Keen called "The Ice Pick Surgeon," which focused on when medicine and science went kind of rogue and scary. Now, we blame Burke and Hare, but here's the other issue, right? There were plenty of unscrupulous medical examiners and scientists that were willing to take those bodies just fine, no questions asked. Bodies were hard to come by. It's not like there's a body (laughs) delivery truck. But but here's the thing. The reason I mention them specifically is you can still see not only information about Burke and Hare, but yeah. Burke's skeleton. Oh, wow. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he uh, he was killed or something in the midst of this. Well, he was kind of executed for this. Oh, he was. Ac- that's right. He was arrested. And, then, and, yeah. and then as punishment, to add insult to injury, his skeleton hangs in the Anatomical Museum at Edinburgh University. But at the Surgeon's Hall Museum, the okay. one we're talking about, you can see his skin made into a notebook Whoa. along with his death mask. Oh. Okay. They said, oh, you Whoa. like, hey, bro, you like stealing bodies and donating them to medical school so much? Well, good news. We are going to display you. And he is one of only five known human skin-bound books that <laughs> that are at least in general knowledge of existence. So, of course, there's the Necronomicon, the Burke Skin Notebook. Yes. Um, <laughs> What? what? Oh. We've, we've talked about this in Halloween episodes, and you should yeah, go back we, and listen to we, them. But if you'd like to know where I first came across this delightful little tidbit, there sure. you go. Head to Scotland, have some whiskey, and look at a pathology and medical museum. <laughs> Absolutely. Josh, I was not expecting this one, but this was creepy. <laughs> it was so creepy. So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, wash your hands, get your shot, wear a mask, be safe, find a country that has a cool medical thing going on, book your plane ticket, don't be a jerk, and when you've done (laughs) all of those things, happy travels. Bye, everybody. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.